the Heavy History British General Election Series podcast with Dr. Luke Blacksell and Mr. Tame Sala. So, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the third episode of the Heavy History British General Election Series on the General Election of 1880, titled The Masses and the Machine. My name's Dr. Luke Blacksell of Hartford College, University of Oxford, and I'm joined, as ever, by my learned friend and associate, Mr. Tame Sala of the Queen's College, University of Cambridge. So, the general election of 1880 represents round three of the titanic duel between Gladstone and Disraeli, and we didn't think that we would have a third round to this duel. Indeed. After the 1874 election, Gladstone, chastened by defeat, leaves the front bench retires from frontline politics altogether, preferring the company of Homer and theology, whereas Disraeli, already 70 years old when he assumes the premiership, is elevated to the House of Lords about halfway through his time as Prime Minister and is awarded the title the Earl of Beaconsfield. And one of the ways in which Gladstone chooses to conduct the third round of this duel is in the country, through taking his words and himself all over the country on train journeys and through large political meetings to address huge crowds through the famous Midlothian campaign. And at the bottom of the Liberal Party, something else is happening, another important political modernisation, the evolution of what looks like a modern party machine in the shape of the caucus and the National Liberal Federation. Men who have been inspired by reform, chastened like Gladstone by the defeat in 1874, and who also just think of party organisation and also what liberalism even means in a modern way, creating a new kind of structure in the political party, with Gladstone at the top, the parliamentary party in the middle, and these activists pulling the wires of the machine on the bottom. Yeah, so we're having uh, what you can think of as a, an entirely new way of thinking about political engagement or political activism and indeed by extension political parties instead of having um, a politics or a party be about the MPs who sit for that party in Parliament or instead of it being about the grandees who sit in the House of Lords or who organise the constituencies on behalf of the MPs you have ordinary members of the public who feel strongly about their own various political causes and choose to congregate in these party organisations in their thousands and in their combined strength of their thousands seek to dictate to the party's MPs what the party should stand for. And it's going to be these two things that are going to frame our two talking points in this cast. First, we're going to be talking about the masses and Gladstone's Midlothian campaign, and then we're going to be talking about the party machine. So our first talking point is the Midlothian campaign. Gladstone bringing politics to the people through a series of whirlwind speeches all around the country. Now, in understanding how the Midlothian campaign came into being, we really have to understand Gladstone's reaction to Disraeli's foreign policy in the mid to late 1870s. Gladstone in believing it to be jingoistic, vague, ad hoc, Palmerstonian, interests first, he had, for example, made Queen Victoria Empress of India in 1875, a very gaudy jingoistic gesture, had acquired a huge portion of the Suez Canal based on a gentleman's agreement with his friend Lionel de Rothschild, and had started bellicose um, sabre-rattling um, military encounters in Afghanistan 
and South Africa. But then the thing that really annoys Gladstone is Disraeli's policy in the Balkans. That's right. In the second half of the 1870s, so much of British and European politics centres around what to do in the Balkans. The Ottoman Empire had for several centuries been the predominant power in southeastern Europe, but right through the 19th century, its power was visibly waning. And the other, and the, the, the competing great power that stood to benefit most from this was Russia. And uh, in the eyes of Disraeli and much of the political establishment, the central British foreign policy objective was to, uh, so far as possible, prevent Russia from overwhelming the Ottoman Empire and uh, uh, taking the predominant share of the Bosphorus and of Southeastern Europe more generally. The uh, 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 sort of the spark that really ignites this latent foreign policy concern is a series of uh, uprisings that occur uh, in, in majority ethnic Bulgarian parts of the Balkans, what we now call Bulgaria, where the population was uh, uh, for the most part Christian, and where the Turkish government, in trying to suppress these uprisings, sought to uh, 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 use quite uh, horrifying violence, what we would now call ethnic cleansing, against the Christian Bulgarian population through the use of irregular troops and soldiers. Uh, Gladstone, hitherto in basically retirement, not particularly connected to day-to-day -day politics, uh, uh, gets wind uh, of, of this sort of build, of this building a feeling in, in Britain and other European countries of horror at what was going on. There already was among some clergymen, both Anglican and nonconformist, outrage at the reports that were coming uh, from Eastern Europe uh, uh, regarding the scale of the massacres. Um, Gladstone snaps into life, as he so often did when he engaged in, in, in one of his great crusades, um, despite not having any deep specialist knowledge of southeastern Europe, he ferociously fires off a, uh, a pamphlet that, um, within a very short period of time, becomes a bestseller, uh, focusing on what becomes, known, what becomes known as the Bulgarian horrors. And this is perhaps the most famous passage from that polemic. Let the Turks now carry away their abuses in the only possible manner, namely by carrying off themselves, their Zaptiers and their Murits, their Bimbashis and their Yuzbashis, their Kaimakams and their Pashas, one and all, bag and baggage, shall, I hope, peer out from the province they have desolated and profaned. This thorough riddance, this most blessed deliverance, is the only reparation we can make to the memory of, the, of those heaps on heaps of dead, to the violated purity alike of, ma of matron, maiden, and of child. So as you can see, very strong stuff indeed. And uh, uh, coupled with the growing general discontent and uh, 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 horror towards, towards, towards these events in the Balkans, Gladstone sets off a fast storm. In particular, the firestorm is directed at Disraeli, because Disraeli, through all the, the, the period of time in 75, 76, through which these rumours were coming to, coming to arrive in Britain, dismissed the, uh, the, the, you know, the so-called ethical imperative to uh, align British foreign policy against the commission of these atrocities. He dismisses the rumours of atrocities as coffeehouse babble and makes it clear that as far as he's concerned, the central foreign policy interest remains 
containing Russian power, atrocities or no atrocities. Yes, and the way, I suppose, that Disraeli responds to this in sort of policy substantive terms is really through the Congress of Berlin, where the Russians have obviously made the Ottomans sign this treaty, the Treaty of San Stefano, which is you know, a really brutal treaty as far as the um, Ottomans are concerned, that Disraeli sets off to the Congress of Berlin to try and tame the Russian bear. And through you know, a series of sabre-rattling, diplomatic pieces of manoeuvre, Disraeli returns triumphant from Berlin, also having acquired for the British Empire the island of Cyprus. And superficially, it looks as though Disraeli, despite the windy uh, rhetoric of Gladstone about the Bulgarian horrors, has managed to seemingly solve the problem. And this is indeed where the word jingoism even kind of comes into um, a popular circulation as um, you know, part of how Disraeli has managed to um, bring back peace with honour. Um, uh, from the Congress of Berlin. But Gladstone really is not satisfied with this. And then when we wind on to uh, the final few years of Disraeli's 74 to 80 ministry, Gladstone has found some other um, uh, foreign policy, um, uh, pieces of foreign policy that um, uh, Disraeli um, has, um, uh, has, has pushed Britain into, such as the um, uh, wars um, in, in Zululand, for example, which have some of this same kind of crude luster that Gladstone is really attacking. That, yes, Disraeli might have managed to get off the hook at the Congress of Berlin, but he is still um, pursuing a sort of gaudy form of national greatness in, you know, in almost glorifying uh, these encounters with Zulu warriors where the, um, where the British redcoats are armed with you know, modern, modern weapons. And this forms the basis of Gladstone's next stage of attack, the sequel, if you like, for Bulgarian horrors, his attack on Beaconsfieldism. That's right. So it's not so much the failure of the Israeli foreign policy that uh, attracts Gladstone's ire. It's, if anything, the success of it. Not only the, the superficial vindication of unscrupulous conduct of foreign policy, but the fact, the horror at the fact, that uh, these um, short-term foreign policy successes seem to go down so well with the British public. The fact that, you know, the, you know, the song of Jingo becomes a, a regular turn in the music hall. Um, as the old turn went, we do not want to fight you, but by Jingo, if we do, we've got the men, we've got the guns, we've got the money too. The fact that this sort of message went down so well was what uh, gave Gladstone the sort of moral imperative to uh, 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 underline through his political rhetoric, the real moral purpose of popular politics, the real moral character of the people as the main sort of political agent in, in uh, uh, post-reform Britain, as opposed to the dread vested interest groups, as opposed to the, uh, 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 to the plutocratic elite of the West End, of the Carlton Club and the East India Club and so on. And it is this, what we might call, populist conception of political morality that Gladstone appeals to so powerfully. Uh, to go to the, the final of the Midlothian speeches on the eve of the 1880 election, he sums up his position thus. We cannot reckon on the wealth of the country, nor upon the rank of the country, nor upon the influence which rank and wealth normally bring. In the main, these powers are against us, for wherever there is a close corporation, wherever there is a spirit of organised monopoly, wherever there is a sectional and narrow interest apart from that of the country, and desiring to be set up above the interest of the public, there, gentlemen, we, the Liberal Party, have no friendship and no tolerance to expect.
above all these, and behind all these. There is something greater than these. There is the nation itself. This great trial is now proceeding before the nation. The nation is a power hard to rouse, but when roused, harder still and more hopeless to resist. For a nation calls to undertake a great and responsible duty, a duty which is to tell, as we are, are informed from high authority, on the peace of Europe and of the destinies of England, has found its interests mismanaged, its honour tarnished, and its strength burdened and weakened by needless, mischievous, unauthorised and unfortifiable engagements. And it has resolved that this state of things shall cease, and that right and justice shall be done. And note that these awe-inspiring words were not uttered to the House of Commons. These were public speeches. And this is really where the actual applied effect of the Midlothian campaign comes in. Now, Gladstone is standing for the constituency of Midlothian in the 1880 election, which is a Scottish county constituency with a relatively small electorate of only around 3,000. And while he holds very big meetings at Midlothian, which is a rural area where it's you know, difficult to assemble large crowds, but nonetheless he still manages to get large crowds, the thing with the Midlothian campaign is Gladstone is making these sorts of speeches not just in kind of sort of set-piece orations, but also on journeys. Um, for example, he went on a train journey from Liverpool to Edinburgh, where he ended up, when the train was stopping at various stations, being effectively pressured to make impromptu speeches to um, awestruck um, uh, passengers and people simply gathering at railway stations and having to make literally these kind of whistle-stop speaking tours. There's actually a really, really nice story, not about Gladstone himself um, going to a railway station, but about a report of Gladstone's speech in a contemporary newspaper that someone was reading at a railway uh, waiting room. Um, that um, a man next to him, um, being curious as to what it said, asked if um, he could read the speech to him about what Gladstone had said. Um, Eventually, when this request was complied with and the original gentleman was reading the speech, soon a large crowd was assembling, railway workers, other passengers, such that he then felt compelled to go out of the waiting room onto the station steps to address a still larger crowd so that more people could hear what Gladstone had actually said. And so this is very much a campaign rather than just a speech in the House of Commons or just one set piece oration. That's right. So we are seeing um, um, in, this, in this grand series of rhetorical exercises a tremendous unifying of the rhetorical register of the nation. In other, as you said, that Gladstone speaking to the House of Commons is indistinguishable in style and form, from Glad in most respects at least, from Gladstone speaking to uh, assembled mass of, of ordinary people, including those people who would not have been entitled to vote by the virtue of being woman or virtue of being too poor. Um, and similarly, the audience is unified. Not only is he addressing the crowd standing in front of him, he is addressing newspaper readers in every part of the country. Uh, the 1870s is the age of the, the, the mass-reported speech. Um, the 1870s is the decade where advances in telegraph technology permit it, make it possible for a politician to give a speech for a journalist in attendance to note down the transcript of the speech and then to have uh, that transcript telegraphed to newspaper offices in every part of the country so that it can appear often verbatim in full 
um, uh, at the breakfast table of millions of readers the following morning. But the really interesting thing here is that Gladstone is not talking down to these millions of readers. If anything, what he's asking to do, rather than bringing a kind of accessible politics to the masses, as you would normally associate a politician on a campaign to do, he's really asking people to come with him on a moral journey. And this is one of the reasons why I think that politics is um, uh, so exciting for these ordinary people who either haven't, are not within the pale of the Constitution or who have recently been given the vote. Gladstone isn't speaking down to them. He's also talking um, for ages as well. So there's no attempt by Gladstone to make politics somehow more um, consumable. And so even though this is, in many respects, a huge explosion of what you might call populism, Gladstone's rhetoric isn't exactly populist. It is still high-minded. It is still moralistic. It is like Gladstone opening a door that has previously been closed to huge sections of the population and saying, let's go on a journey together and help, help uh, and govern the nation. I think um, also the other thing is the real style in which Gladstone was speaking in. Now, Gladstone was, of course, an, you know, an experienced preacher. He was obviously a, a, an exceptionally fine orator in the House of Commons. And I think it is how this had an effect upon people who were listening to the speeches or who were reading the reports in the newspapers. So-called Gladstonization. There was a report from a staunch conservative barrister called Montague Williams, who um, uh, heard a speech at a Blackheath. And he said, as I walked away from the meeting, I found that the magician's power had succeeded and my political opinions had undergone a complete change. Indeed, there are other um, similar um, quotations from people who were reading um, or uh, watching some of Gladstone's speeches. And we've got here uh, one from an artisan who remembered this process of Gladstonization 30 years later. He writes, Without an effort, so it seemed to me, the great orator held his audience for nearly two hours. I stood so far off that his features were indistinct, but was spellbound by the music and the magnetism of the wonderful voice. I was conscious of the presence of a great human personality under whose spell I was under, and from whom I could in no way escape. If the things he said were unintelligible to me, the voice brought it with something of an inspiration and of uplifting power. I felt lifted into a holy region of politics where Tories cannot corrupt or jingoes break through and yell. Many of these kind of descriptions followed those who heard Gladstone's speeches. And so he had that effect in bringing politics to the masses. That was also, of course, abetted by this new age of the telegraph, national political um, uh, commentary, all going out to many national and regional organs simultaneously. And this, Mr. Sala, really had an effect on bringing a form of national uniformity into political discourse and political culture that had perhaps hitherto been absent. Yeah, so um, what, you know, one obvious consequence of um, uh, a prominent politician's speech being almost instantaneously accessible to more or less the entire literate population of the country is that politicians, uh, uh, you know, obviously very quickly become aware that this is the case and, um, uh, uh, you know, adapt what they say, you know, with, with that very important fact in mind, with that kind of virtual audience very, very prominently in their minds when they formulate their words. 
Um, and so if um, in early, early generations of, of politicians addressing people in their own constituency or their own locality, um, if there was any uh, a tendency to uh, uh, allude to or to draw upon uh, certain kind of reference points of local collective history, um, that tendency would diminish is that you know the sort of the the or kind of for that by the standards of the time awe-inspiring mobility of words to travel at the speed of light down telegraph you know along telegraph wires um, from one end of the country to the other you know makes all these sorts of local particularities obsolete. Yeah, exactly. It's much more difficult for um, a local liberal candidate, especially if he disagrees with Gladstone. Mm. When these speeches have entered such wide circulation, and Gladstone has got such um, a magnetic celebrity persona, to actually disagree with Gladstone, to go and say that well, here in West Leicestershire, we take a slightly different view from that, when all of the new Newspapers um, that you know many of the electors were reading would contain Gladstone's words. More difficult uh, for these local candidates to dissent from the, what is coming out of the centre. That's right. So we are seeing, uh, sort of, from this point of view, and as we'll soon be discussing, the point of view of the grassroots organisation, uh, tendencies towards nationalisation or national har harmonisation, but at the same time bringing out perhaps what's uh, uh, the you know, ever since the, the Second Reform Act being sort of latent, which is certain ideological tensions within the Liberal Party and competing definitions or conceptions to what liberalism consists of. Um, the real sort of uh, fleshing out of those tensions, the real eruption of those tensions, is for a later episode. Um, I think that's because in the context of the looming 1880 election, whatever differences there may be, or whatever uneasiness some Whigs might have as to, you know, the exuberant nature of Gladstonian rhetoric, the messianic kind of overtones of this entire way of doing politics, at the end of the day, they all, you know, to a large extent, basically share the fundamentals of Gladstone's uh, objections to Beaconsfieldism. Um, uh, they all obviously share a desire to get the Tories out of office and to return to office themselves. So for the time being, what we have is a, you know, an exceptionally powerful motor of national harmonisation of a political movement. Disraeli, of course, at this point is an old man and only a year um, away from death and isn't really able to um, uh, meet Gladstone's fire with any of, him, any of his own. But what is the broader legacy, of course, of Midlothian is that this kind of obligation of political uh, leaders uh, to really begin to meet the people, to make these large speeches, to develop um, uh, speaking styles which work with the audience. Um, you know, even though Gladstone's speeches were perhaps more similar with the House of Commons, perhaps he was that much more of an interesting parliamentary orator, but people who weren't so interesting had to perhaps develop ways of making themselves more interesting. And so this also changes what political campaigns are like and means that politicians, especially leading politicians, um, have to, if they are going to be able to use these kind of powers that Gladstone has tipped out of the magic box, also have to learn these arts of oratory. So, our second talking point is about the machine, or the caucus. Now, the Liberal Party had, of course, lost in the general election of 1874, very unexpectedly. And note that even though this was the first election the Conservatives had won since 1841, the Liberals did not think there was anything natural or well-established about a two-party system. As far as the Liberals were concerned, now that uh, reform had occurred 
and voting had been popularised to include large numbers of working class electors, there was no good reason why every government should not be a liberal government. And having been beaten in 1874, part of the finger of blame was pointed at the Conservatives' organisational or perceived organisational superiority in 74, where they had set up Conservative central office under John Gorst previously. And so the Liberals want to try and fight back with their own organisational system. Yeah, that's right. So we're seeing um, a whole new cohort of new men of a quite different cast of mind entering the political, entering the political system on the Liberal side. Exactly. And those new men, if you like, were appearing, especially in um, uh, provincial towns, um, uh, places um, uh, like, um, uh, like Leeds, like Birmingham, these kind of men, often who had been enfranchised in, um, in the Second Reform Act, often who had been involved in municipal affairs, um, very often who were inspired by Joseph Chamberlain in Birmingham. Birmingham had been one of the flagship municipal corporations, a practitioner of gas and water socialism, where the local authority there had taken over um, running local utilities like gas and water and was reinvesting the profits into things like buildings, tramways, municipal improvements, etc. New men who had cut their teeth in these new municipal corporations, given the parliamentary franchise often in 1867, coming in to the Liberal Party. And we've got a nice um, a quotation here from um, H.J. Hannam Election Party Management, uh, published 1959, of what the appearance of these new men looked like to a man called Wemyss Reed, who was a stalwart denizen of local Leeds politics. Um, he was going to a meeting where the Liberal Party member who had lost his seat in 1874, Sir Edward Baines, was proposed to be readopted. And he writes, as I expected, it was proposed at the meeting by those who had long been recognised as the leaders of the Liberal Party in Leeds that Sir Edward Baines should be the candidate. Forthwith, a most violent opposition was offered to the proposal by men who had never before been heard of in Leeds politics, and some of whom who had only been resident in the town for a few months. I remember that the most violent of these gentlemen was a schoolmaster from Birmingham who denounced Sir Edward Baines for his assistance he had given in passing the iniquitous measure, the Education Act. Another gentleman denounced him with equal violence because he was the proprietor of the Leeds Mercury, a journal which had dared to speak disrespectfully of the truest and most honest liberal of the day, Mr Joseph Chamberlain. On all sides, I had extreme opinions expressed by men whose faces and names were quite unfamiliar to me. And I found to my dismay that the more extreme the opinions, the warmer was their reception by the representative Liberals present. They would hardly listen to their old leaders, who had grown grey fighting the battles of Liberalism yesterday. They treated with contumely any words of soberness or moderation. They applauded even speakers who were palpably selfish or insincere. As I listened to that debate, my eyes were opened and I realised the fact that a great revolution had been suddenly and silently wrought, and the control of the Liberal Party had, in great measure, passed out of the hands of its old leaders and into those men who managed the new machine. So we're seeing that very illuminating quotation, that, that account from the, uh, uh, the Liberal uh, Association in Leeds, um, 
just uh, 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 what what the, the arrival of these so-called new men meant. Not only they are they men of different origins. So we, as you said, there are men who often relatively recently acquired the franchise. There are men who are usually um, non-conformist um, and identify themselves with the fringes of, um, should we say, uh, you know, uh, kind of respectable, established Anglican society. Um, there were people who. Um, uh, had found had previously found it easier to get involved in the much closer, um, um, uh, uh, in some ways more down to earth world of municipal politics as opposed to national politics. But now they were coming to national politics in order to, um, as they would, as they probably would have seen it, to get their due. Yeah, and the reforms that these new men bring in into the way that local liberal associations, like Leeds and in other places, uh, were run was to democratise the local associations. Uh, having gatherings like the Liberal 400 or the Liberal 600, um, these being associations which would um, vote not only on the um, uh, policy that that Liberal association should adopt, its attitude to key issues of the day, um, but also on who its parliamentary candidate um, uh, would be, um, to the um, obviously a detriment of someone like Sir Edward Baines, when a radical was actually chosen um, in his place. And these, demo these um, uh, Liberal 400s or Liberal 600s are um, elected or nominated by Liberals on a local ward basis. And so what this effectively means is that the vast majority um, of the people who are nominated in these 400s or 600s are not the old Whig magnates, the old Whigs in charge of Liberal politics, because they, while they are large in influence, large in wealth, are few in numbers. And so it looks as though the Whigs are being swamped by this new wave of what we might nowadays call entryists. Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, the, the sort of the, the key advantage moving away from the man of established influence and the man of established wealth to the man who may have neither on his own influence nor wealth, but rather knows the rule book very well and uh, is able to attend all the meetings and stay for the full length of all the meetings and knows how to make friends in those meetings and knows what resolutions to push at those meetings and which not to push and when to push. Um, this is uh, what, what sort of uh, uh, party activism starts to look like for the first time. And of course, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a vision of a political party that, um, though new in the 1870s, um, becomes very familiar to us in the second half of the 20th century and indeed more, more recently the start of the 21st century. That you have, I mean, the contrast is very striking that with the Liberal Party, there had been, before the establishment of the National uh, Liberal Federation, there had been organisations like the National Education League, um, which was uh, concerned to, you know, to campaign for, se for a secularised, uh, uh, free-for-all primary education system. You have the United Kingdom Alliance, which uh, campaigned for uh, on temperance causes, that is to say, to try to limit the sale of alcohol, the licensing of pubs. You have the Liberation Society, that sort of disestablished the Church of England and generally rolled back uh, the various legal privileges that the Church of England enjoyed. Those things obviously predate the, the late 1870s, but what's really interesting now is that so many of the, of the personnel who operate these voluntary societies um, are now coming together and claiming to be, you know, the uh, uh, embodiment institutionally of the Liberal Party, that they are the Liberal Party, they decide what the Liberal Party 
um, what positions the Liberal Party has on the issues of the day and who gets to stand for election as a Liberal Party candidate. So there is almost the perception that the Liberal Party is being transformed or taken over, as its opponents might see it, through people from below, through people who often hold more radical politics. The parallels here, of course, dear listener, between uh, this and the modern Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn and to a lesser extent, um, you know, with, uh, with, with Tony Benn, are obviously quite, um, quite clear. But as these local associations individually begin to change, and not in all places, not in the countryside, not in Scotland, not in London, but usually in provincial boroughs where there is also a very strong municipal corporation where, you know, local and parliamentary uh, life, I suppose, overlap perhaps more easily, that there then comes the beginning of the federation of these new men's liberal associations with something called the National Liberal Federation, which is founded in 1877. Now, this is really the creature of Joseph Chamberlain, the Birmingham screw manufacturer, formerly mayor of Birmingham, who pioneered this gas and water uh, socialism, has become the MP, uh, one of the MPs for Birmingham um, in, um, uh, uh, in 1876. And he has the idea of federalising these national associations. And one of the reasons this happens around Birmingham, incidentally, is something uh, to do with the debate around something called the Minority Clause. This is because Birmingham sent three MPs to Parliament, but each elector only had two votes. And the Liberals, knowing that they had a comfortable majority in a city like Birmingham, actually gave electors instructions of which of the two Liberal, or which of the three Liberal candidates they should use each of their two votes for. Thus, um, thus ensuring that the Conservative, um, who would have otherwise benefited from a Liberal vote split was effectively shut out and the Liberals would gain all three MPs. And they managed to do something actually similar with the local council. So Chamberlain has a strong um, basis to be able to claim master, uh, be able to claim that he is an organisational um, mastermind. And so the National Liberal Federation will be able to dispense this kind of electioneering advice um, literature, later on agents, to all of these affiliated liberal associations. But moreover, and perhaps more importantly, that they would hold national conferences where delegates from the individual liberal 400s or 600s from particular towns would go and vote on what they thought national party policy should be. And so therefore, you have another part of the political party, not the leader, Lord Hartington, or the parliamentary party, not Gladstone, um, going about in the train with his Medlothian campaign, but these NLF-affiliated liberal associations making a combined programme of what they think liberalism should stand for. Doesn't quite appear in 1880, but later on it will find voice with the unauthorised programme of 1885. So a change of what actual parties look like. Yeah, that's right. And so there's, on the one hand, this dilemma this argument that we recognise in, in more contemporary politics, in the Labour Party in particular, where um, uh, there's an argument between, um, who, you know, who embodies uh, the political authority that, that, you know, the name of a party or the identity of a party carries. Um, is it the MPs who can claim to represent, you know, the nation at large, the electorate at large, and therefore are sort of, because they're accountable to all voters, not just party activists at every general election. They're the ones who, um, you know, are in a position to take the pulse of the nation and the pulse of the typical liberal voter, as it were. Or is it the, the activist who feels most strongly about the liberal cause, who takes the time to really engage with the liberal cause and participate in meetings and participate in local politics, um, uh, are, are, you know, is, is, is the latter the, the, the real source of authority in determining what liberalism 
actually consists of. So, I mean, and I think that one, one aspect, I mean, one thing that was very, one very significant implication of that thing there in Birmingham about the minority clause, that's not just um, sort of a coincidental pretext that helps launch Joseph Chamberlain's national career, but I think it gets that sort of um, is quite a nice sort of analogy for what gets, for what um, really is at the heart of the Whig or the Conservative um, uh, distaste and aversion and genuine apprehension as to what this new party organisation really embodies. Because of course, the minority clause for boroughs like Birmingham, which had more than two MPs being elected by the same electorate, the whole point of the minority clause when it was introduced, the Second Reform Act, um, is to guarantee some modicum of political representation for minority parties. So, one, you know, it was designed to abut the, the apprehensions of those like, say, Robert Lowe, whom we discussed in the first episode of the Second Reform Act, um, uh, whereas people like Robert Lowe were afraid that enfranchising, you know, uh, 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 the masses, the millions of the working class would swamp the educated, cultivated, uh, politically engaged minority um, by you know the un the unforgiving logic of the headcount, the whole point of the minority clause is to is to try to guarantee that the weaker of uh, the two parties in a given constituency would have at least one MP to rely on. Now you have the logic of the machine kind of finding a way to hack that system and to subvert the you know the, the logic that that you know um, um, for many kind of mid Victorian politicians valued the idea of minority representation and the fact that even a minority is sort of outnumbered it still has something valuable to contribute to parliament and to national politics. Yeah so this is I suppose really the predictions here of someone like Robert Lowe in some respects coming true albeit through the medium of party organisation that it looks as though that the Whig faction in the Liberal Party which has a disproportionate um, share I suppose of the um, party's cumulative sort of essence or history in its money will be um, uh, simply blown away by the enormous gun um, uh, that all of these new members, some of which are particularly interested in certain causes, will bring, that they'll effectively uh, be, be swamped. And so it is hard to exaggerate the um, distaste that Conservatives, certainly, but also many Whigs, have for this new Birmingham kind of machine. Even though um, at the top of the party. Gladstone is mm, curiously ambiguous about Birmingham liberalism and the party machine. He's actually fairly relaxed about it because it's not as such harming him. Um, so they, the irony there being, I suppose, that you've got Gladstone at the top and the National Liberal Federation there at the bottom, both representing different kinds of um, liberalism, and both in some respects representing homogenizing forces, but in different directions. Gladstone's homogenization through, you know, his politics of moral passion that we saw disseminated everywhere in the um, uh, in the national press, and then the kind of machine politics coming out of the caucus that's appearing there in the liberal grassroots. So two versions of more homogenized politics um, uh, that are becoming nationally influential, but two different ones. Yeah, so we're seeing in you know, part of the spectre of this uh, national, you can call it the modernization of politics or the homogenization of politics, the thing that for, uh, you know, the, the Whigs were still at the top of the Liberal Party in the 1870s, what's so threatening about particularly the, the caucus machine version of this, but also in some ways the Gladstone um, a grand rhetoric, mass, mass rallies version of this, is that it, it tramples, the, uh, uh, it, both of those things in their different ways, trample upon the individual conscience and the individual ethic in politics. So whereas the idealized 
mid-century Whig version of um, uh, kind of constitutional parliamentary politics in a free country is, uh, the, you know, the cultivated, the responsible, the independent, those who are in a position to vote and to deliberate upon the nation's affairs. Um, they consult their own interests and their own conscience um, and in collaboration with one another, you know, settle upon what is, you know, truly in the national interest. Um, but that kind of model doesn't face up uh, uh, when sort of hypnotised uh, 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 as one man in a crowd of thousands by a great orator like Gladstone, and it doesn't survive very well um, in the majoritarian conditions of the party meeting, whereby, you know, whichever side, regardless of arguments, regardless of, um, you know, intellectual cultivation, whichever side can get more bums on seats in the meeting, whichever can win the headcount, gets to command majority and therefore command the loyalty of the cultivated minority. Mr. Sala, I couldn't have put that better myself. So, ladies and gentlemen, after all these pyrotechnics in 1880, I bet you're gagging to find out what the election result actually was. So, we are joined here again by F.W.S. Craig's British Electoral Facts, and I can announce that the general election of 1880 was a comfortable victory for the Liberal Party, by a very similar margin to the margin that Disraeli had won in 1874. The Liberals winning 352 seats, that's a net gain of um, 110 from 1874. The Conservatives 237, the Home Rulers 63. The Liberals winning around one8 uh, million votes, the Conservatives winning around 1.4, and also a notable fall in the number of uncontested returns. So a very handsome Liberal victory. And we can say that the gauntlet having been thrown down to the Liberals by the defeat in 1874, that they seem almost certainly to have responded. 1880 is actually a very long campaign. It's a campaign lasting several weeks rather than uh, just a few. And one of the things that Liberals really like about this is that they think it gives them the opportunity to bring their organisation, but also their advantage in speakers, and of course Gladstone's Midlothian campaign, to bear in a way that wasn't the case in 1874. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you uh, start, um, you, you know, demarcate the starting point of the sort of rhetorical build-up to the general election as beginning with Gladstone's first journey to Midlothian and his first round of speeches at Midlothian. That's in November 1879. So that's what, um, five or six months, um, you know, effectively of the ratchet being put up um, rhetorically by Gladstone and others in the Liberal Party, uh, preparing the country uh, to go to the polls on their own terms, on the Liberals' own terms. You know, Gladstone wants it to be a referendum on Beaconsfieldism and, you know, on, on, on one very plausible telling of the, of, of the election, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, in terms of party organisation, uh, one of the reasons why I think there's that fall in uncontested seats that we um, observed there from FWS Craig is because of the new importance here of organisation, with both sides having much, much more um, a sophisticated um, electioneering apparatus, ability to parachute candidates into seats, etc. And on the organisation front, uh, it's also notable that 1880 was viewed to be a very expensive election, 
uh, an election featuring a lot of corruption and a lot of violence as well, and this was one of the reasons why there was a real crackdown on that a few years to follow in the Corrupt and Illegal Practices Act of 1883. But moreover, on organisation, what is the impact of the National Liberal Federation? Well, that's a debate in and of itself. Certainly you have Joseph Chamberlain and his agent Francis Schnadhorst uh, writing a great deal, um, uh, puffing a great deal, his opponents might say, that the NLF had seized uh, huge advantages for the Liberal Party in places where there were more NLF-affiliated associations or where they were bigger. But on the other hand, Whigs saying, well, actually it hadn't made much of a difference. But nonetheless, I think we can say that given the handsome electoral victory by the Liberals, it looks as though the NLF is here to stay and is not simply a passing fad. Yeah, that's right. And that creates real difficulties for the incoming Liberal, uh, liberal ministry. That it's, it's one thing to have these divergent sort of ideological and uh, philosophical tendencies in a party when it's in opposition, when it can at least unite around a common desire to get back into power and to dish the opposition. Um, uh, and that well, we can very clearly see that um, in the Liberal Party in the late 1870s. But from 1880 onwards, when it is uh, in, uh, you know, entrenched once again fairly comfortably back in power, um, all of these uh, uh, dissensions and disagreements are going to come to the fore. And, you know, as we've been uh, uh, sort of emphasising throughout, uh, throughout this episode, you have uh, Whigs like Lord Hartington at the top of the party, you have uh, William Gladstone at the top of the party, and you have rising up from the bottom... Uh, quickly, you know, making their ways towards the top of the party in the person of Joseph Chamberlain, you have the activist base of the National Liberal Federation. The Liberal Party won a majority of 52 seats over all other parties in, in this election, but which one of those three actually won the mandate? Yes, that's exactly. And that's the thing, I suppose. What is the Liberal Party? The liberal, Liberalism um, has secured this handsome victory, but of those three strands that Mr. Sala described, each of them have made their own kind of claims to be important. Gladstone with his Midlothian speeches, Hartington anchoring it with the centre, and Chamberlain with the organisation. So undoubtedly, the Liberals have stared back at the challenge that 1874 posed to them. They have provided an inspiring response but the question is, what is the Liberal Party now? Is it the mid-Victorian Liberal Party of Palmerston and Russell? Is it Gladstone's party or is it Chamberlain's party? That, ladies and gentlemen, will be something that will be revealed in future episodes. Thank you very much for listening this far. I, Mr. Sala, am about now to pop off to supper at the Athenaeum and one day, I do believe, especially given uh, some of your excellent points tonight, that I will propose you as a member. Goodbye and good luck.